The opinions expressed on Tomahawk Talk do not reflect that of WVFS Tallahassee. The final show of 2022. It is a very good evening to you and how you be. William Haynes here. You are there at 7 o'clock on a holiday week Monday night. Happy holidays to all of you out there. Night number two of Hanukkah, Christmas coming up on Sunday to those of you that celebrate. So glad to have you with us here. The final Tomahawk Talk show of this calendar year 2022. Reminders to those of you that are new. This is Tomahawk Talk, the weekly sports power hour on the voice of Florida State, WVFS. You're listening to us locally here in Tallahassee, 89.7 FM, wvfs.fsu.edu, online, anywhere in the world. Tomahawk Talk is available the next day as a podcast as well. Thanks especially to Jack Oliaro producing the show uh, virtually uh, from his home in Orlando, which brings us to the to the point of, of who's in studio tonight, and it's just yours truly, William Haynes, on the mic tonight alone in the studio just about everyone else is home not just in v89 sports but i see in campus as well the the streets of tallahassee are empty all the buildings all the apartment complex uh parking lots are empty everyone has gone home uh except uh select few like us i know there was a dj before the show uh here and then there'll be a new release with a dj in studio after me at eight o'clock as well but it's uh, it's a pleasure for me to be taking the mic solo tonight, taking you through everything in the world of sports, Florida State and otherwise. Number to call the show and talk to me, talk sports, whatever you got on your mind. Maybe you need ideas for last second Christmas gifts, uh, whatever, whatever's on your mind. Just call us up. 877-566-1020 is the number to call for a one hour uh, show here a holiday special edition of tomahawk talk if you will a couple of guests in store for tonight right at around 7 10 so coming up here fairly shortly mason young who is the the sports editor of the ou daily that's the student newspaper in norman oklahoma for uh, the university of oklahoma to talk about uh, the football matchup the cheese it bowl on december 29th as we like to do with uh, sports writers and broadcasters across the country i'm hoping He'll call us. I would be lying if I said I didn't get a little bit nervous with uh, the, the time changes, the time zones. I think uh, the, the guest that we had for LSU at the beginning of the year was the only one not in the Eastern time zone. So uh, we'll, we'll roll the dice on that also later in the hour. Kylie Brennan, our very own, but also uh, a newly minted sideline reporter for the ACC Network. She's going to be uh, sideline reporting this Wednesday afternoon here in Tallahassee for FSU women's basketball, and it's uh, a big period of time for them. Yesterday, they played uh, the University of Connecticut, one of the Blue Bloods in all of women's college basketball, and it was a, a tough loss, but they played strong in the second half. We'll talk about that as the hour goes on. So that's what's on the slate. FSU football preview the Cheez-It Bowl. We'll tell you about what's been going on with FSU men's and women's basketball. But before we get into any of that, what I want to do first is is give a tribute to someone in the sports world that uh, was very special, not just to me, but uh, to people all across uh, the sports world and, and even beyond the sports world, I suppose. But but Mike Leach, he was the head football coach at Mississippi State in his third year this season. They were eight and four and they were practicing uh, up in preparation for the Relia Quest Bowl, which is just the new name sponsorship for the Outback Bowl that's in, in Tampa and Raymond James Stadium. They, they are to take on Illinois on January 2nd. But uh, Mike Leach, a couple of weeks ago, uh, fell ill on a Sunday night, had complications to a heart condition. He was taken uh, to, uh, uh, to a nearby hospital. And so... Uh, the news came out. Everyone is is showing their concerns. We weren't really sure what was going to happen. And then uh, as we went off the air last week on Monday night, uh, he, he passed away. The, the, the news was announced, I believe, by Mississippi State that Tuesday morning last week. So he passed away at the age of 61. Uh, very well-traveled head football coach, uh, obviously, you know, co-father of the air raid offense and so on and so forth. Changed the game. Uh, in a lot of ways he was an assistant uh, to hal mummy from 1989 to 98 in uh, various places iowa wesleyan valdosta state kentucky at kentucky they they coached tim couch to become the number one overall pick of the nfl draft as you'll remember and uh leach and mummy came up with uh, basically that air raid offense the shotgun spread the wide receivers all the way out near the sideline uh leach's entire career calling plays 
off of a piece of paper smaller than an index card. You talk about the the simplification. I mean, some of these coaches that you see in football today, Jimbo Fisher and and Andy Reid and the likes, you know, holding Waffle House menus with multiple pages of plays that they're flipping through, but not for Leach. Had it simplified, and maybe because of that, he was able to have so much success in that offense. And I spent one year at Oklahoma in 1999. We'll ask our guest. Uh, from Oklahoma about that and was there for just one year as the offensive coordinator and took Oklahoma's offense from the worst in the Big 12 to the very best in the entire conference uh, in, in his one season there. And out of that, he, he parlayed that into his first head coaching gig uh, in college football. I think he was uh, he was a head coach in for a team in Finland uh, earlier in his career. But in the college head coaching ranks uh, from 2000 to 2009 was at Texas Tech. Um, where, where he really came to be known by by everybody, basically. 84 and 43, his record there made some big-time noise in the Big 12. Obviously, that game we'll all remember with Michael Crabtree down the sideline into the end zone against, I believe, what was number one of the time, Texas. They upset the Longhorns in Lubbock. Uh, so spent about a decade there, then spent the 2010s, 2012 to 19 in Washington State, uh, Pullman all the way up there in the Northwest went 55 and 47 in his time there. Uh, his team went 11 and 2 in 2018 and finished ranked number 10 in the country. That was kind of the the apex of his time there in Wazoo. And then um, really the, the the biggest time gig of his career came in 2020 with Mississippi State, getting a chance to take his offense and and all of his all of his strategies and, and such to the SEC to, to put it to the test against the best defenses really college football has to offer and, and had some success there in, in three full regular seasons, went 19 and 17, but had a becker, better record every single year, went four and seven his first year, seven and six the year after, and then this season, eight and four uh, in a national college football playoff ranking, uh, going to the Relay Quest Bowl, as I said, against Illinois. Uh, in 2020, in his first ever game, uh, he took his Bulldogs into Baton Rouge and played an LSU team that didn't have a great season that year. But if you'll recall, they were coming off a national championship win with Joe Burrow and company departing. And uh, Mike Leach in, in, in Mississippi State put on a show. They blew out LSU in that opening win and, and put the, the whole conference and the whole country on notice and uh, they went four and seven that year, but had a bowl game bid because of all the things scheduled with COVID. Um, you look at his his career resume outside of that. Out of the top nine uh, single season passing totals in college football history, four of those nine quarterbacks were coached by Mike Leach. 2003, B.J. Simmons at Texas Tech. 2007 and 2008, Graham Harrell at Texas Tech. And then Anthony Gordon for Washington, Washington State in 2019, all, all of those throwing for nearly 6,000 yards, which is hard to even fathom them doing that. But that's just the system that he was able to create and, and tweak as the years went on. Like I said, really simplified uh, wide receivers running different routes based on the defense that uh, showing them not running the ball the whole time, as the, the air raid name suggests. And also his coaching tree, players that, that played for him, Josh Heupel and Cliff Kingsbury have, have uh, turned out to be big-time head coaches. Heupel with Tennessee, Kingsbury with the Arizona Cardinals, and then assistant coaches under him that are now head coaches. Lincoln Riley at USC. Sonny Dykes at TCU, who took his Horned Frogs to the playoffs. Uh, they'll play in a couple weeks. And Daniel, Dana Holgerson at Houston. Six others, players and coaches under him, that are now uh, head coaches at the college football level. So... As I say, the resume, it speaks for itself. Uh, he was also known not just for the football side, but the non-football side as well. Uh, he got a law degree. He was prepared to, to be a lawyer, then decides uh, to go the football route instead. Didn't play college football. He had a, an injury in high school that uh, took away his ability to play. He went to BYU and played rugby there, um, but then gets into the head coaching ranks and, and the air raid and all this, but also he's known as the the pirate over the years, his fascination with the ways of the pirate, as he would always talk about at press conferences, uh, study different war generals and their strategies in regards to, I guess, football coaching. But also uh, you could ask him about Halloween candy. You could ask him of his opinion about weddings. You could ask him uh, your opinion about uh, the Pac-12 and how each mascot would fare against each other in a fight. And he was there really to, to do it all. 
answer it all. He was He's not like the modern-day coach that would shy away from questions like that. He wanted to have fun. And so Mike Leach passing away at 61 is, is a figure in sports and in college football that will be dearly, dearly missed. Went 158 and 107 all-time as a head coach, uh, just shy of a 600 winning percentage, which is the minimum requirement to be eligible for the College Football Hall of Fame. Uh, you would imagine that the Hall of Fame is going to waive that mark because I think he's just a couple of points. I think it's 590, that mark, whatever the math comes out to. And so, you know, you talk about his legacy uh, left on and off the field and otherwise, and he certainly, I think, should be a College Football Hall of Famer. But with that, we are going to go to the phones, picking up the call now. And on the line, joined with us now, the, the OU Daily Sports Editor, Mason Young. Mason, are you with us? Hey, I'm with you, William. Thank you for having me on this evening. Absolutely. I really appreciate you you giving me some time. So, so how's it going? Are you still over there in, in campus and everything, not going home yet? Yeah, no. I'm, I'm from Oklahoma City, so it's been pretty convenient for me to go to school here the last few years. And, yeah, just hanging around campus. We, had, we were able to watch practice for a little bit today and, and talk to some OU players afterward, and then they'll have their – signing day press conference on Wednesday so yeah I noticed I went on online to to look at some of the the sports stuff you guys have done and I I listened to to one of the podcasts and it was not as much a lot of attention about this year but it was looking at recruiting and everything for for the next couple years I look forward to hearing from you about that but the first thing I want to talk about I mean this season for Oklahoma they go six and six uh, with Brent Venables coming back he spent 12 years as an assistant there in Norman, first time as a head coach. Uh, what did non-Oklahoma fans, like Florida State people like myself, what did we miss just seeing that 6-6? Six and six? What was uh, there to be read between the lines from your perspective? Yeah, well, I think there's a number of things there. It's a really complex situation. Uh, I understand why people, even Oklahoma fans themselves, uh, would look at that and kind of think like, oh, no, like what happened? Like, like is, is this going to work out? I think you have to, you just have to take it um, as it comes. You have to understand that, you know, anytime there's a coaching change in college football, um, you know, like things don't always turn out the same way. Not every situation, um, improving the roster. And then also you have a head coach who um, is kind of figuring out how to be a head coach. That's some of what has played into the season, but I think there is optimism that that stuff will be fixed in the future. You mentioned all the the unusual circumstances, and and certainly there's a lot. With that being said, would you shy away from saying that six and six and the way that they went six and six was a disappointment, or do you think there still needs to be blame and fingers pointed? I mean, a forty nine nothing loss to Texas, they lose three of their last four to end the year. I mean, what's your what's your thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. No, it it definitely is a disappointment by what Oklahoma standards are. I mean, you look at. At the, at the winningest program in college football over the, the last 20-ish or so years and, you know, 50 conference championships across the history of OU football. Storied blue blood program in college football and, and definitely not what people should come to expect out of the season, nor should they continue to expect. So there's definitely some blame there. Um, you know, the, the coaches and players overall, like everyone has to be better um, moving forward. And really it comes down to, to discipline. Um the the technique and, and and things like that just weren't all together at the right times um, during the season. Um, and, and there just wasn't much complimentary football. It's like whenever OU's offense would go put up 50 points, you know, the defense would give up 40 and it would be a close game. Or whenever the defense was, you know, shutting down the opposing team, then the offense was all out. They would keep getting three and outs. They wouldn't be able to convert third downs. So really just that was the biggest kind of, I think, underlying storyline of this entire season was just not a lot of complimentary football being played. Um, and that all starts with discipline, you know, doing the right thing at the right time. So, yeah, Brent Venables has, has got to figure out um, how to get these guys to perform in games. Um, he said that, you know, their, their intent and their purpose and, and their buy-in to what he's been teaching as a coach hasn't wavered and that they do the right things in practice. It's just translating that um, to the situation. That's really important because, you know, you've got an SEC transition coming up within the next couple of years where, um, you know, you don't really want to have any trade-offs. 
we obviously as a university want the economic benefit of that, but you don't want your football program to go down the tubes just so you can get, you know, more money from television revenue, et cetera. So he doesn't have much time to get this thing figured out. Um, but, but I think that, that he will definitely, you know, do everything he can to make that happen. And, um, but yeah, un- until he does, then yeah, you've got to question, you know, um, where, where do they go from here? Exactly. Yeah, before that, I want to just take a step back one more time because something that I would love to hear from you, your local perspective, because nationally, when the uh, the Lincoln-Riley divorce was split and, and he skips town for, for Southern California and, and then they hired Venables, but nationally we would see these message board posts and things like this. I mean, Oklahoma fans really taking it difficult that, that Riley departed. I mean, from you going through that and covering that coaching change, I guess maybe it helps the blow a little bit. The Venables was uh, uh, over, spent over a decade with Oklahoma previously, but uh, which is what that transition was like from uh, you had a coach that had taken you to the playoff and was really embraced, and all of a sudden he's gone uh, at the drop of a hat and, and, and a new guy coming into town. Right, a really peculiar situation. And to your point, people were really frustrated. I think, you know, Lincoln Riley is and and will continue to be until someone else that's really high in, in Oklahoma society uh, leaves. He'll, he'll, he will kind of continue to be public enemy number one. Um, you know, in, in this market for a long time, that was Kevin Durant after he left uh, the Oklahoma City Thunder uh, for the Warriors. But now that's um, Lincoln Riley in this area. And so just a really, a really weird situation. And yeah, people were, people were feeling good when Venables came. You know, it was... Like you pointed out, it was a, a callback hire. There was just this feeling of nostalgia because he was one of OU's defensive coordinators when they won the national championship in 2000. And a lot of the fans had always loved his passion and his intensity as a, as a defensive coordinator. And so, yeah, there was there was a lot of optimism um, when when he was hired, um, kind of based on, on his, his track record. And, I mean, Obviously, he has a good one. You have that, but he also has the two national championships at Clemson, having been the highest-paid, you know, assistant coach in college football for a long time. Um, so, yeah, that that was definitely really, really attractive and uh, and enticing to people. And you know, I again just go back to yeah, it, it's a really weird situation, and uh, people have a really hard time with letting go of, of Lincoln Riley and not wanting to still, you know, wish him ill and and uh, see him fail. I think there was a there was a lot of reaction when USC lost the Pac-12 championship game to Utah. Oklahoma fans poking fun at him and Caleb Williams, etc. Um, but I, I think that at some point fans will kind of move on. If Brent Venables gets this thing going in the right direction again, and OU becomes among the powers of college football again, then you know people will will set that aside, not not that they won't necessarily, you know, be like uh, Lincoln Riley, like uh, you, you left it like kind of like a, like a you're missing out um, type situation. I, I think that some people in the area might still kind of have that attitude after, but I think that people will probably let go, let go of that to some extent if Brent Venables is this thing rolling again. They're clinging it to, to it right now as kind of a crutch because of how poorly the season has gone. Right. If there's one thing I can tell you covering Florida State over the years, it's that uh, I imagine Lincoln Riley will probably always be public enemy number one. And I say that because of the Jimbo Fisher debacle in Tallahassee, how he, the way in which he left and he left recruits and such high and dry fans here root for a Texas A&M loss like nothing I've ever seen. And it will probably always be the case. So I imagine uh, anytime Lincoln Riley loses a big, big time game at USC, there'll be uh, parties uh, in Oklahoma. But with the the coach that's there now, Brent Venables, known for his defense, obviously Florida State fans know his body of work with Clemson and, and his uh, ability to torment the Knolls over the years. But the numbers, obviously not there. Oklahoma giving up nearly 30 points a game this year, allowing over 450 yards per game. But X's and O's wise, because with Lincoln Riley, Oklahoma was always known, you know, great offense, but the defense was was suffering and could cost them some games. Now with a defensive first head coach, X's and O's wise, change in strategy. What have you seen? How is Venables trying to change the defense to make it more competitive? Well, I think the thing that 
is going to really prioritize this year is being really multiple. I mean, and, and I know he did that at Clemson as well. You know, they've they've switched the fronts around depending on the opponent or depending on the situation of the game to uh, try some different packages and et cetera and, and, and try to be more multiple. But I think, I think to the point of um, what you're saying, you know, the results just aren't there yet because he's working with kind of what are the leftovers of what Lincoln Riley had when he was here in terms of the guys on defense. And um, you also factor in that OU had like four defensive players from last year's roster um, go to the NFL draft. I mean, that definitely didn't, didn't help the fact that they didn't have, they had a lot of guys um, from, from the uh, 2021 defense that weren't back this year. You know, you had a lot of guys that were eased into um, more important roles that weren't exactly prepared for those situations necessarily to, to play so much uh, after not really playing it at all um, the year before. But there's, there's been a few bright spots there that people might not necessarily see. Um, you know, they, they practically led the nation in tackles for loss this season. They may have actually finished first. I'd have to go back and look at that. But they were definitely up there. Um, and, and so that's, I guess that's something you can kind of build on. But I, I think another thing, too, that has kind of stuck out to me, and I've heard some rumblings of this, but, um, you know, like was, was Venable's playbook in year one too much uh, for this team, just too expansive for them to be able to retain? And, and part of that was he wanted to really establish a familial culture. Um, and that's all well and good. They really focused on on building relationships with the guys at the, at the beginning uh, when he first got here, kind of in the winter and spring and stuff like that. And I think maybe he would he would even admit now that you know they should have spent some more time um, on the playbook, like gotten into the playbook earlier. And that's all stuff you know you, you learn as a head coach, and you have to figure out when you're trying to build a, a program up in, in your image and in your likeness. So. That's the one thing you, you kind of wonder about a little bit is if maybe they those guys just had too many plays to, to figure out in this first season and maybe it overwhelmed them a little bit at times in terms of the calls being right but them not knowing necessarily where to be and stuff like that. So I, I think that's the biggest thing with this defense is just they want to be multiple. They want to give people a lot of different looks and a lot of different things to think about. They want to really disguise well and stuff like that. But just in year one, maybe the, the learning in terms of comprehending what they're supposed to be doing hasn't been altogether there. And then also factor in that, you know, Brent Venables is not really working with his guys per se. Gotcha. Okay. So now turning our attention to the, the Cheez-It Bowl next Thursday night, uh, help us understand the impact of some of the players that have opted out. I mean, I know they're, they're running back Eric Gray had almost 1,400 yards a couple of starting offensive linemen and a, and a big defensive line prospect. Uh, but, but what's the impact of the players that Oklahoma is going to be without in that game? Yeah, I mean, that's you're, you're right. That's all stuff that's really big. I mean, honestly, Eric Gray was the offensive MVP of OU season, and I think low and away, essentially their best player across the board uh, this year. Um, so they've got, they've got a really promising freshman running back in, in Javante Barnes who – I would expect will get get the lion's share of carries in this game, um, and he's been very good at kind of the change of pace when healthy. Eric Gray is a slasher. Uh, Barnes is is more of a, a physical downhill guy, um, but I would expect him to to really factor in um, out of the backfield. And then uh, Gavin Sawchuk is another freshman they have that should get some more opportunity in this game. And he hasn't really he's only played in like two games this season, so. It will be interesting to see what he actually has and, and brings to the table. He's supposed to be incredibly fast. So that's the running back situation for OU. Um, you mentioned the offensive line. You know, they lost uh, both their starting offensive tackles, Anton Harrison and Wani Morris, who both declared for the NFL draft. That's a big loss. Um, I would say on one side of the line, I think OU is pretty confident in, in Tyler Guyton. He's a TCU transfer, a younger guy that they picked up, but that's really big. I want to say he's like six seven and over three hundred pounds, just a dude. And um, played a, played some early in the season uh, when Wanya Morris was out and he was dealing with an off field issue. Um, so I think there's a lot of con- 
confidence in Tyler Guyton that he can put together a really strong game, and then he probably comes in as this team's starting left tackle next season unless they make any other moves. Um, and for the right tackle spot, uh, it'll be interesting to see what they do. I think uh, Jacob Sexton, who's a local kid and a former four-star recruit, is, is likely to get the, the start um, in this game uh, at, at right tackle. And, um, you know, he's a guy that didn't really see much of this year, but that this will be a big opportunity for. So it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, how, how successful the offensive line is in this game. I know Brent Venables really loves him, some, some Jared Burst and, you know, I, I think that, you know, Florida State's front definitely has the opportunity to give OU some trouble in this one, but we'll see how the, uh, the young and growing um, tackles kind of react to the situation. And then on the flip side of the ball, I think for me the biggest concern is the defensive line, especially the interior, you know, you alluded to, but Jalen Redmond, who was, he was OU's best defensive tackle this season by far in terms of all the statistical categories, sacks, tax for loss, et cetera. He opted out to, to start preparing for the senior bowl and the draft. Um, and they've had about like four or five defensive tackles that were guys that didn't really get much playing time, um, hit the portal, but that's still a lot of depth. Um, and so they're, they're looking at about uh, four guys probably to, to fill that uh, spot. None of them like, I would say incredibly spectacular in terms of their production this season, but maybe one of them will have a big game. The guy I keep an eye on is, is Grayson Halton. He's a freshman that has played some tackle and also played some end um, this season. He just seems like he has a he has a knack for rushing the passer, and you know maybe this can be a, a game that that really springboards his career as, as he gets more opportunity in the middle. Knowing what you know about Oklahoma and, and their season this year, what are your predictions for this game? How you think it's going to play out? I mean, is Oklahoma going to just have to throw for the game with maybe a hampered running game and, and so on? And, and what do they do on defense to, to try and stifle a really strong Florida State attack? Yeah, that's the thing. I just, like, I think that this game is going to be, and it sounds cliche, but one that's kind of run in the trenches and, I don't really have like the greatest amount of confidence in OU's offensive line to react to Florida State's pass rush, nor for you know OU's defensive line to you know pressure. Um, but then also, you know, factor in that you're you're having to to play some contain with Jordan Travis and not let him beat you with his legs. Um, so you know that said, I think that this shouldn't be like really a close game. If I had to just kind of like spitball. A score, I'd, I'd probably say Florida State 45, OU like 21, something like that. Um, yeah, I mean, we'll just kind of we'll just kind of see how it goes. But you know, this this OU team just even and even compared to you know last year, like last year when they played in their bowl game, they still had had uh, Caleb Williams. Yeah, they lost all their defensive starters, but they had, you know, a future Heisman winner at quarterback, and uh, they were playing Oregon that also had a, uh, a bunch that just was really thin, like had over like 30 guys that, that weren't playing in that game between opt-outs and injuries. So I, I just think like even compared to the what the product that OU put um, on the field in its bowl game last year when Lincoln Riley left, um, this, this group looks incredibly thin and I just I I think that with the success that Florida State uh, has had this season and, and how far Mike Norvell has you know brought this program, I, I would think that this ought to be a, a a pretty decent win for Florida State. Yeah, I think we're in in lockstep a little bit with the score prediction. The one I had given what was forty one seventeen, so really close to yours. Last thing I want to ask before you go, I know. He was only there for one season in 1999, but but Mike Leach, with his passing and all, I mean, is his legacy at Oklahoma how he was remembered? Certainly, you would you know him from his time going up against Oklahoma with Texas Tech. But I mean, since his passing a week ago, what has everything been in Norman with uh, remembering him and and so forth? Yeah, well, first of all, I would say you know I got the opportunity to, to talk to Mike Leach for a story I was doing a, a year or so ago. And just the fact that, you know, he just 
was willing to talk to anyone. And yeah, sometimes it was odd hours of the night. I don't know if the guy ever slept, but just his genuineness and his kindness and his willingness to open up to people was was really really cool. Um, and I'll, I'll never, you know, forget, you know, the opportunity that I had to, you know, interview one of one of the most kind of just really eccentric but also beloved kind of characters in college football in a sense. Um, you know, in, in terms of reaction to Norman, you know, there's been varied reactions. Um, Bob Stoops and, and uh, Brent Venables as well, and OU's athletic director, Joe Castiglione, have all, you know, talked about their their kind of thoughts on, on Mike Leach and, and what he meant to them uh, as, a, as a colleague and friend. And a lot of OU's, like, former players, you know, been willing to, to speak and kind of open up about, you know, what Mike Leach actually did teach them during that 1999 season that set the table for their, uh, you know, national championship in 2000. So, um, yeah, I do remember at, at one of the basketball games the other day, they held a moment of silence for him and put his picture up on the scoreboard. Um, that was at the OU basketball, men's basketball game uh, this past Saturday. So, yeah, he, I mean, Obviously, across the college football landscape, he is really beloved and, and, and will be missed. And safe to say that it's the same here in Northern. Yeah, and I know a lot of people out there across the country know about that that story from that 99 season when he directed one of the players to to drop a fake game script on the Texas sideline before the, the Red River showdown. And that was a, a great uh, kind of episode and, and what was a great uh, career and a great life from him. But... Mason Young, sports editor of the OU Daily, I can't thank you enough for, for the time on the program. I really appreciate the time and the insight, and I wish you best of luck uh, with your time at Oklahoma and beyond. For sure. Appreciate it, man. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. The pleasure was mine. So, there he goes, sports editor of the OU Daily, Mr. Mason Young. Yeah, really, really great call, really great insight. I thank him and uh, everyone from uh, the sports page over there. Uh, for all of that but we charge on about 10 minutes in front of uh, a call from from kylie brennan about fsu women's basketball but i want to continue florida state football and, and preview the cheese it bowl december 29th that's next thursday night at 5 30 uh broadcasted on espn but they'll play it in camping world stadium in orlando uh we won't be doing a show next monday night the 26th so this is our full-on preview for that game oklahoma coming in at six and six Florida State at 9-3. Florida State number 13 in the final college football playoff rankings. As of right now, the spread, it's continued to climb up. Right now, FSU is favored by 9. So a multiple possession win. Vegas is thinking Florida State has in store. The over-under on the game is 65.5. I mean, both my score prediction and Mason's were under that mark by about 10 or 15 points. So uh, maybe Vegas knows something we don't. Certainly, Oklahoma is capable of scoring 24 or 31 but with the running back and the two tackles being out, I just don't see it as being as much of a likelihood. Uh, the, the broadcasters on TV, if you're curious, Bob was choosing to do play-by-play. He does radio for the Jets, but also some pretty t- big-time, usually Big Ten games on ESPN. And then the, the color commentary will be from Dan Orlovsky. Does a lot of former uh, – he's a former NFL quarterback with the Lions and uh, a couple other teams, but does a lot of NFL work. Uh, I think but started out – doing college football with ESPN. So with Shusen and Orlovsky on the telecast, Oklahoma leads the all-time series between these two schools 6-1. to one. I apologize if I'm rubbing some salt in the wounds, but just want to provide some historical context. The Sooners uh, had matchups in the Orange Bowl against the Knowles in 1980, 81, and 2001, and Oklahoma won them all. Uh, it might be all on the quarterback, Dylan Gabriel, a little bit of a homecoming for him, spent some time at Central Florida before transferring over uh, to Oklahoma. So he's back in Orlando in the state. Not the same stadium, but back in the city at least. Um, For Florida State, really, stick to the game plan. Oklahoma has allowed nearly 200 rushing yards per game. Uh, The Knowles have averaged uh, 260, or actually, sorry, 220 yards on the ground per game. So, you know, a strength on weakness there. Florida State running the ball, Oklahoma stopping the run. I know Venables is he wants to be tough up front and be physical against the run like he was at Clemson for all those years, but they don't have the guys and they certainly don't have the system in place as of right now to get that job done. So uh, Trayshawn Ward is back healthy, but obviously you have Trey Benson who's going to play in the game and, 
and Toa Feely in front of, I think, as well, all the offensive linemen are going to play. I, I kept looking for opt-outs. There does not appear to be any opt-outs for Florida State. Everyone you've seen this year just about is going to play, including Jared Verse, who, if he enters the draft, will likely be a first-round pick. Still has not been announced if he'll stay or go, uh, but he's going to give it at least one final ride in the Garnet and Gold. And because of that, I think Florida State is going to score a lot of points like they have all season long. I think they'll they'll keep the momentum up. And for an Oklahoma team that lost three of their last four regular season games, really limped to the finish line, uh, barely getting bowl eligibility at six and six. Uh, I think this could be a little bit of a blowout. I'm not going to lean in into a crazy blowout. I think bowl games are weird. Um, obviously, with all the time off in between the games and, and some players not being involved or or, or, you know, maybe not being as involved or as amped up for a game as they would be in the regular season. I'm not accusing Florida State of doing that, but you just never know in an environment like this. Uh, but I've got Florida State winning still in a big way, 41-17. to 17. So I think for sure Florida State covers. Uh, but I don't know about that 65-and-a-half over-under. I mean, I think, um, I don't know. I don't see Florida State scoring more than, than 41, low 40s. Uh, but I, I think maybe Oklahoma does a little bit more their part scoring. Uh, could, Oklahoma could get that does num- a little bit more their part scoring. Uh, could, could get that number a little closer, but I think 41-17 around there is where I see it playing out. Some other FSU news I want to cover quickly. Football news. On Saturday, December 17th, uh, this is huge news. Covered all over the place. They, they broke ground on a, on a new football-only training facility known as the Dunlap football center 150,000 square feet it'll cost nearly 100 million dollars it'll be attached to the existing indoor dunlap athletic training facility and it'll overlook the outdoor practice fields it will include meeting rooms a a uh, locker room presumably so they don't have to go to over to doke to to go to the locker room before practice and after practice which which is nice uh, some offices, obviously a football-only weight and training facility, and as well all of the uh, the therapy, like the cryotherapy and the you know the underwater treadmill, all the crazy uh, sports health science stuff that you see in, in college football and the NFL. Uh, funding for this project began in 2018, but a really strong push from Athletic Director Michael Alford in his first year in that post, and certainly when you go nine and three on the field. People, as I mentioned last week, are a little bit more inclined to give an extra buck or two. And so able to, whatever that funding mark is, as I said, nearly $100 million is able to get it done. This has been something that's been talked about for for years, decades uh, even. Uh, It'll be completed late summer 2024 is the hope. So that would would get you, I'm assuming they're hoping for for fall camp uh, prior to the 2024 season they'll have this. I think uh, it's important. I mean, Michael Alford mentioned this that it opens up the existing facilities to the other 19 teams that Florida State fields. And when I say that, you know, with, with what comes with a football-only facility, you know, it's nicer and, and football gets to have it all to themselves. But the system that was in place before, the, the training facilities that were there, all the teams had to share. And so football certainly gets priority. Maybe they don't say that, but we, you know, between me, you and the lamppost, I think we know how that, that works. You know, other teams maybe not getting the most favorable times to go and train, maybe super early in the morning or maybe super late at night, whatever the case is. And so, because, I mean, you would see, you know, videos in the offseason of, you know, the soccer team training in that indoor practice facility, the same field that Florida State practices on. So not only for Florida State getting something all to themselves, or football, I should say, the football team getting something all to themselves that they can have and certainly helps with recruits. I know Alfred had the the big quote as well that, you know, there's no lazy rivers or putt-putt courses or slides like you see at other schools with their exorbitant training facilities. But, you know, they have the meeting rooms and the film rooms and having the practice locker room and and all these things. I think it's just, it, it helps. And uh, college football is all about a, a funding arms race. And this puts you in that category with all these other schools. I know Clemson had their big unveiling of theirs a few years ago. So you stay on pace with that, not just NIL money going to the players, um, but, but going into facilities and things that will help when you have people on campus visiting and so on and so forth. So we're a couple of years away from a new football-only training facility. 
Uh, the Battles End NIL Collective announced deals with uh, defensive lineman Dennis Briggs, uh, nickel corner Kevin Knowles II, and offensive lineman Darius Washington uh, to, to come back. Uh, the Battles End Collective all about roster retention. And so they are going to, to have another... Uh, another season at least in the garnet and gold what we'll do now is go to the phones and uh, i'm assuming this is on the line and talk some some college uh, fsu women's basketball are we joined now by kylie brennan the acc sideline reporter is this you yes it's me all right we got the right person kylie thanks so much for calling in here to the show first thing i want to do obviously is congratulate you on this new sideline job Thank you, William. Uh, I'm very excited for Wednesday uh, noon. The Miami game will be my debut. Looking forward to it. Gotcha. So what goes into to preparing to, to do a game as a sideline reporter, the preparation and everything? Uh, well, honestly, a lot of watching film. Uh, Thank goodness for the ESPN app. Uh, I've been watching games on demand uh, just from Miami and Florida State both uh, just to make sure I refresh my memory. Um, got a meeting scheduled tomorrow, uh, 11.05 with Coach Meyer, trying to see if I can get Haley Cavender there too, and then 11.30 meeting with uh, Coach Wyckoff and Tania Latkin, GOAT. So that's pretty cool. Obviously, we see on TV you get to interview, you know, the coach at halftime and the players after the game. But going into it, even before the game, talking to, to some of these players and coaches, that's uh, an interesting perspective. Florida State women's basketball had a really big day yesterday. They played one of the biggest names in the sport in UConn. They went to Connecticut to play that game. And they didn't come out on the winning end, but I think ultimately they were competitive. But I want to ask, what did you see uh, from watching that game? Well, for starters, that's um, that's FSU women's hoops' biggest competitor to date. Uh, getting to play the NCAA tournament runner-up, that's that's an amazing honor. And um, also, just another cool bit about that is that uh, Brooke Wyckoff uh, played for the Orlando Miracle, which later uh, went on to be based out of Connecticut. So there was a lot of fun ties there as well. But out of the game, honestly... The main thing that was seen in the first half was just kind of lack of discipline and perhaps maybe just kind of a cold start. Uh, Connecticut obviously had a home crowd there. UConn is known for their women's hoops and uh, Paige Beckers, even though she's off the court right now. And I don't know if um, our girls are used to having an environment be like that. Um, as you know, how the Tucker Center kind of is for our women's hoops games, but uh, Wyckoff had a technical. There were a couple personal fouls in a row, um, just simple things like that. But they were honestly, they seemed they seemed unstoppable. For the women's team, as I said, the the game in Connecticut on Sunday, yesterday afternoon, against number nine UConn. They're now eight and two. Uh, the Huskies are, but. Anyone that's been following this sport the last few years knows they have been on one heck of a run and they are one of the best teams in the entire sport. And what comes with that is just watching the game on TV, if you did, you would know that UConn, they were just taller all across the floor. They dominated the rebound battle. I think by plus 15, the rebound margin was. They were always there with the crafty pass. If the ball was on the floor, it just seemed like it was going UConn's way. They're veterans. They're, they've been in these situations before in big games. Kylie mentioned the, the crowd maybe rattling Florida State a little bit, and she also mentioned how young Florida State is. And um, Brooke Wyckoff, it's not her first year as a head coach, but it's year one of, of this new tenure uh, for her here. And so all those things combined, I think it was amazing that you even played UConn this close. It was 85 to 77. So you lose by less than 10 points. You kept it close for a while. You know, you, you open the game down 10, nothing, and then things could really get off the rails, but then, you know, you have a 27, 24 second, second quarter, and then you win the second half by a total of plus 10 points. So really after that first quarter, it was mostly Seminoles 
And and so that fight and and everything like that that you saw, Latson, Tanaya Latson, the, the best player. I think she's won, you know, player or rookie of the week. I think every single week. She fouled out of the game right at the beginning of the fourth quarter, so was not available down the stretch at all. And with all those things being considered, you never look at a loss necessarily as a good thing, but uh, but showed a lot of good things that that would give you some confidence in their abilities this season. And as I said, an ACC outlook that is not fantastic as you look at the national rankings. It's top-heavy. Notre Dame at 5, UNC at 6, NC State at 7, Virginia Tech at 8, all clumped up there at the top. There's no other teams in the Atlantic Coast Conference in the top 25 at all. And so I think Florida State will have a chance, certainly better than last year, who made the national tournament. I think this year's team has an even better chance to really make some legitimate noise, and they'll, they'll take on Miami at noon uh, on Wednesday here in a couple days for uh, an in-state big rivalry game. For the men's basketball team, they had a win uh, against USC Upstate at home, one of their bye games uh, against the smaller schools, 80-63. to 63. Cleveland had a double-double in that game and played well. And then on Saturday, the Orange Bowl Classic uh, in South Florida, a neutral site game against St. John's, the Red Storm coming up from, from New York City. And St. John's now, I think, in the top 25, but they're 11-1 and this season. They won that game 93-79 over Florida State. I mean, it was a one-point game about 10 minutes in, but certainly a much better team. And the Johnnies had a chance to run away with it. St. John's about 50 Two and a half percent from the field, won the rebound margin by 10, uh, 19 of 23 at the free throw line. So they were sent to the line a lot, and but they were also really efficient there. Florida State, to their credit, though, 11 of 19 from three. Most of that was Darren Green, who we'll get to. But Matthew Cleveland, another double-double, um, was really efficient from the field as well. 23 points, 12 rebounds, and he's going to be, once again, the team's best player. Maybe, because the guy I'm about to talk about, Darren Green Jr., played all 40 minutes in the game, had 30 points. He was 8 of 11 from past the three-point line, and the only reason, I guess, it was anywhere close. I mean, you go not you go 11 for 19 from three, but 8 of 11 of that is from Darren Green. So imagine where they would be without the UCF transfer. I heard he got some boos uh, in the stadium there because UCF was playing a game right before, and some of the fans that stuck around weren't... Uh, all too pleased with maybe their best player skipping town. But this was the first game really I saw where Leonard Hamilton didn't really go to the bench a ton. I mean, you, uh, Tom House played five minutes, uh, Deontay Green nine minutes. The only other two players off the bench, Kim Korn with 20 uh, and, and, and Jackson, Chandler Jackson with 14. But the starters all played a lot. Cleveland played 37 out of 40 minutes in a game. Darren Green played all 40. Jalen Worley, 31, Caleb Mills, 33. So this was the final game before conference play, and I think it's all inter uninterrupted ACC play um, from here on out. And so we saw them mess with lineups and subs and things early on, but this is the team. Uh, I, they obviously don't know who the five is. When Baba Miller comes back in a few games, that's all going to change maybe. But Naheem McLeod played 11 minutes, although he started the game, but he just got dominated. He's a big body seven foot four down low but really struggles uh on the rebounds and, and battling some of the bigs that the florida state has been dominated by this year cam corn uh got more minutes but came off the bench uh, as a freshman i guess he's could maybe play the five more in acc play but cleveland warley darren green and caleb mills those are going to be the guys and they're going to play almost the whole game they're going to play 30 to 35 minutes each and so it's going to be on their shoulders they don't have the depth they tried to work guys back from injury the best that they could. But what is, is. And you'll play Notre Dame uh, on Wednesday night here. It's a it's a night game. You have the women's game at noon. You have the men's game at 8.30 against a 7-4 and four Notre Dame team. That's a winnable game. And then their next game after that on New Year's Eve at noon at number 14, Duke. Uh, the ACC is uh, on the men's side is weird, too. UNC is unranked. Duke is 14 Virginia is in the top five, but really no one outside of that uh, getting any kind of national recognition. And so you got a few games left without Bob and Miller. The Wake Forest game in mid-January is the first that you'll get him back from that 16-game NCAA suspension. 
And I guess it's kind of hold on to your hats until we get there because this team is not really good enough to beat anybody until then. Uh, and then we'll we'll talk about the impact Baba Miller can have when it gets closer and when he's here. Um, but but like I said, the lineup you saw against St. John's is the lineup you're going to get in ACC play. Want to wrap up very quickly a couple notes with, with Florida State football, a couple incoming transfers. We mentioned last week Kyle Morlock from Shorter University Division II. Morlock was an All-American there last year. 6'7", 250 pounds, uh, caught for nearly 900 yards in three seasons there. Uh, went to Union County, in high school, uh, Union County High School in Georgia, very north Georgia, Shorter University nearby. So not necessarily a local kid, but from the region. Two seasons of eligibility left. Uh, he came uh, with his family for the UF game, had an official visit a couple weeks ago. So you get Jaheim Bell last week, who was the number one tight end transfer in the country. And now you get Kyle Morlock, a 6'7 kid. The tight end room was the weakest position room in the entire team last year. And you just added two major playmakers uh, that can make a big difference. Maybe this means they won't use Jaheim Bell at tight end as much. Maybe he plays running back. Maybe he plays H back, kind of fullback spot. Um, that remains to be seen. But you get a couple of really good players at a position of need, and they pick up an offensive lineman. Casey Roddick from Colorado. Now that Coach Prime is there, everyone uh, is fleeing out of that program. 6'4", 310 pounds. He's been there for five years, 26 starts over those five years. He's got somehow two years of eligibility left, played mostly guard, and uh, overcame myocarditis myocarditis. (laughs) in uh, in early 2021 and uh, came back to play. He was a team captain in 2022. And so you're losing a few players from that offensive line room. I believe Jasden Turntine is out of eligibility. I couldn't find any answers on that specifically, but I think he's done. I know Dimitri Emanuel is done, as is Dylan Gibbons. So you've got maybe three starters along the offensive line to replace. I don't know if he's one of those guys, but he'll be in the room and and be in the running. But with that being said, 8 o'clock is here. New release is next uh, with DJ Ari. So I thank you for listening to Tomahawk Talk, the final program of 2022. No show next week. That's uh, December 26th. No one will be in town, but we'll be back January 2nd to kick off the new year. So I've been William Haynes on Tomahawk Talk, and you are listening to WVFS Tallahassee, the voice of Florida State.